Hello listeners, this is Conspiracy Theorem. We plan to expose you to conspiracies as much as we can, and then let you make your own decisions on whether they are true or not. Also, a quick disclaimer, we do not claim that any conspiracies we talk about are true at all, and there may be explicit content on the show. Now on with the show. So today I was driving around for three hours looking for a barber <laughs> because my favorite place got closed down and moved somewhere else that I'm not willing to drive through. So um, I was driving down downtown Exeter, and um, which is the place, you know, the town where I live in, and um, I came across a bunch of kids, no older than 12, and um, they were all holding signs and they were in a protest and they were chanting things that were inaudible from inside my, you know, my car, which has excellent acoustic dampening technology. So I can't hear a thing. Um, and um, doing voiceovers. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Back back again. I could do voiceovers in my car. <laughs> Although the, the glass is highly reflective. Anyway, um, so I took a closer look and uh, these kids were protesting guns. They wanted to see reform gun reform so i'm like oh god whose bright idea was it to use kids as a pawn in their beliefs oh whatever okay so what i did is i figured i would use this opportunity to create truth so i did was i pulled my car over parked it in a parking spot walked over to the kid and said hey uh, where's the nearest barber and one of the kids actually walked up to me, and he was no taller than, like, my chest. And he's actually articulately, if that's even a word, telling me exactly where the barber is and how nice that barber is. I'm like, oh, look at that. Thanks, kid. And um, I looked over at the rest of them, and they're primarily females, so I figured I'd um, take it easy with, um, you know, scary voices and what have you. I said, so what are you protesting? What are we doing? Well, I just said, what are we doing today? And I was like, we're protesting. I'm like, oh, there you go. First Amendment. There you go. Use it. It's uh, the most feared weapon of the people. That's why it's the first. <laughs> and they're just like, yeah. So I would, I was asking them, what are you protesting? It's like, are we gun reform? And I'm like, oh, okay. And I'm sitting over here, like, in the bed. <laughs> I'm like, oh, wow. I'm acting like an impressed grandma. When in reality, I'm like, I can't wait to, you know, make this situation a little different. So so what I did is I, I went around asking all of them, so what are you trying to change? What laws are you trying to change? And uh, one of them said, I want to see stronger background checks. I'm like, okay, all right. Yeah, I don't entirely disagree with that. And so what about you? It's like, I want to see us do the things the way that Japan does. And I kind of, I couldn't hold back my, uh, <laughs> what I was thinking with that one. I kind of like eh, pulled my, you know, my mouth apart. It's like, Ugh, oh, oh boy. Right. <laughs> I was like, oh, because I know how Japan does. I'm like, oh boy. All right. How about you? What do you think? <laughs> just, okay. Oh boy. Like, all I right. didn't want to say no comment. <laughs> right, I just didn't say anything. I just thought in my head like, oh, all right. All right. Back to being the impressed grandma being a good actor i was like what about you what do you want to see what do you want to see changed and um she said i want to see ar-15s become illegal I'm like all right so that's it that's that's what we're all looking at here I'm like yeah i just want to be safe at school and i felt bad because they are school kids i'm like oh how do i oh how am i gonna do this so i started i started the discussion by saying all right let's let's take this as an opportunity to 
to change the world a little bit, shall we? You know, and they're like, yeah, absolutely. That's why we're here. I'm like, so I'll do that by lending you an ulterior perspective. And I looked over the person who said Japan. And, you know, I kind of talked about how Japan has massive cultural differences between the U.S. and, and us. They're not necessarily encouraged to be enemies with their neighbors. They're not encouraged to hate each other. And a variety of things, a variety of cultural differences that I could think of off the top of my head. Uh, you know, they, you know, respecting their elders or what have you. Oh, a list of things. I said, you're not necessarily wrong. What's funny about Japan is that... um regardless of what weapons are accessible to them or not, their homicide and violence rates are not all that high. Not by comparison to, let's say, London. <laughs> That's Which is a joke. No, but they also have issues with, you know, on the other hand, they have issues with suicide and right. the pressure to keep honors deep. So right. they have their own set of problems. It's almost when people compare things to Scandinavian countries. I'm like, That's great. But here's the problem. Even when people do it with a good mind, even uh, you could say when people like Bernie Sanders say, okay, we should be like Sweden, Norway. They have a very small population. It's not 300 million or 330 million. So it's very difficult to – it's like me saying, oh, <clears throat> I'm going to do audiobooks like professionals who have been doing it for three, four, five, six years. It's not necessarily a comparable feat. Right. So – so it is comparable in the sense that, okay, sure, Japan, Japanese people don't run around killing each other. Okay, they run around killing themselves, which is unfortunate. Very unfortunate, but it's also, not. you're right, not a comparable issue. And uh, I, yeah, I don't know what to tell them about that. I don't know how to solve that problem. I don't know how they do things over there. I just know that culturally they're massively different. That's all I know, so I'm not going to pretend to speak on something. So I looked over to the person who said stronger background checks. I'm like, okay. And uh, how do you propose that? She's like, well, if you have a permit, you should get your background check annually. I said, okay, that's actually, that's new. I haven't heard that one yet. Okay. I don't disagree with you. I, I believe in doing everything that we can to keep the bad guys disarmed. I also recognize that that's massively unrealistic, no matter how many background checks you have. And I looked over at the one who said, I want to see the AR-15 become illegal. And I said, uh, so how do you propose doing that? And he said, well, I'll ban them. I'm like, okay. Do you understand the, the legal definition of a firearm? You're familiar with the ATF, right? And they're like, ah, and I said, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Like, yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, I do know that. And for some reason, they actually knew the whole acronym instead of the, the letters, which I'm kind of impressed with. They were good kids, by the way. They were all very happy to be there, which is upsetting, but they were enthusiastic. I was enthusiastic. So I continue by saying, I'm going to, I looked over the girl who said I want to see ARs illegal and I said, well, I understand why you think that. That's a lot of firepower for an individual person. But here's the hard part. Do you know what legally defines a firearm? And they weren't able to answer the question. And up until recently, I wasn't able to either. So, I mean, I'm not calling them dumb. So what I proceeded to do is I said, I showed them a picture of the lower receiver in an AR well, of an AR-15 and I said, this is legally a firearm. This part can e this one part can easily be converted by ATF language, easily be converted into a projectile launching fire. Uh, whatever the word is, whatever the signage or wordage is, it has something to do with a singular part that you can easily convert into a device that fires explosively propelled projectiles. And then I proceeded to tell them, what if those holes went there? Do you know what happens? Those little holes you see right there in the receiver. It's like, yeah. <laughs> like, do you know what happens when those holes aren't there? 
Like, what? It's no longer a firearm. And they're like, what's that mean? I'm like, it means it's an indistinct block of metal. However, comma, because <laughs> that's just how I talk. My girlfriend did that to me. Um, if you buy this indiscriminate, indistinct piece of metal, all you have to do is place a couple of wisely placed holes, and boom, now you can insert your trigger assembly. Now, that indistinct piece of metal is a fully working technical definition of a firearm, and it has no serial number. And this is something that you can do in your basement. You could do the same thing from scratch with a 3D printer. Printer, excuse me. All you need is for the gun to work once. It doesn't need to be fully automatic or semi-automatic. It just needs to work for as long as it needs to. And I asked, and she said, well, then ban it. Ban that too. I'm like, how? How do you ban a piece of metal? Think of the amount of things you have that incorporate a small block of metal or some pieces of it. I mean, it, it just take any, like a plastic item that's supposed to be deliberately weighted. Uh, that you, They generally put a stick of metal in it. It's just to add some weight or whatever the item may be. There's several things that have indistinct blocks of metal. So the point being is I was just trying to explain that, look, I, as, as much as I'd love to see everyone hold hands and all that good stuff, unfortunately, banning anything is not nearly as black and white as you will be told that it is. I'm sure you understand that. How many rules do you guys have in school? A lot, right? How many of them get broken? Mm, quite easily. Now, that obviously... Yeah, it's, um, breaking it's rules. like Plato said. You know, a lot of people will... Uh, he said that, like, bad people find a way to break rules, like, uh, obtain them. Because even if you put all the checks, all the balances, all the background checks, all the regulations, someone's going to do something nefarious and steal them. Or find a way to get them on the black market. And criminals really don't have good intentions, obviously. That's why just banning things, to Doesn't me, work. isn't really a solution. It, it, it looks good as slacktivism. Like, oh, we're here to help people. But when I see some people's intentions, I have to ask, if you're against guns, who's going to have them? Someone will have them. Someone will. Oh, yeah. you're, you're not against police. them. You're not against them. You're just in favor of the centralization of its ownership. Someone's going to have yes. to come along with a gun to come take mine because, well, robbing me with a knife is not the wisest thing to do. So, yeah. <laughs> so, but I, I wasn't I wasn't saying it in a fashion that made the kids feel stupid. I said, I, I asked with a very innocent look on my face, how do you legislate that? How do you do it? I'd love to keep guns out of the hands of bad people or hell, even whatever. I'll ban the AR-15, what have you. But how do you? When it can be so easily crafted, the technology to make anything is so cheap nowadays. The resources to do it is so accessible. How do you do it? How do you stop it? Needless to say, she had not a single word of an answer. And again, I'm not calling her stupid. This is probably the first time she's ever heard it. She was no older than 12. And that's when I proceeded to take the conversation. Once they had been exposed to the idea that there are holes in everyone's logic, <laughs> I proceeded to go... So you guys are using the First Amendment right now, and we're debating on the Second, right? We're, we're talking about the Second, and do you guys know why it was written? And a couple of people said, oh, you know, protect yourself and all that good stuff. And I said, and it was written in 1792, right? Or ratified in 1792, what, one of those years. Um, and she said, yeah, but it was written in 1792, and she was speaking really fast, literally. 1792, so the laws have to change too. I'm like, I've heard that one before. Okay. You do realize that the government also had muskets back then, right? Right? I'm like, 
well, yeah, why though? So I said, and so I talked about, you know, the Revolutionary War a little bit, which became a little bit more relatable because I believe at that point the public school system does teach the Revolutionary War a little bit. So I proceed to tell them we had just liberated ourselves from a government that told us who we can worship, when we have to do it, and how much we have to pay in order to do so. <laughs> and we were tired of it. We had no sovereignty. So our founding fathers made sure that it would never happen again. It was written as an insurance policy to protect us from tyrannical governments, whether monarchies, oligarchies, whatever you have to say. Tyrants. And there was this one kid that said, tyranny doesn't exist anymore, though. And there was another little girl that was even smaller that said, it can. I'm like, you are absolutely right. I love it. It can. And actually, I would say it does. It still does. If you look in the back, I'd say, okay, two things. One, someone's going to have the guns. And two, if tyranny doesn't exist, what happens if you don't pay your taxes? Exactly. Exactly. Someone's going to come arrest <laughs> you. Gonna... If you resist, they'll kill you. It's that simple. I mean, <laughs> whatever. Anyway, so it's like Michael Brown. You know, he died over a pack of butts. Someone thought it was okay to tax the shit out of cigarettes, which formed a black market, which got someone killed over it. Hey, if you think that's okay, well, then don't call me immoral. Anyway, so, <laughs> so I'm saying, and so I said, you're absolutely right. And do you know one of the more recent and most distinct examples of that? And she says, what? No, she was so cute. And I'm like, the year 1936, the year of the Night of Long Knives, when Hitler began to disarm the whole population, which paved the way for him to execute the Jews and everyone else under the sun that wasn't blonde hair, blue eyed, what have you, whatever they teach in school. I, you know, <laughs> and do it with little to no resistance. Because he disarmed them and he used, gr he used gang violence as a reason for it. Sound familiar? And that little girl's just like, the tyranny does exist. I just, and you know, this is a poor girl. She didn't know what to say at this point. She's like, I just don't want the bad guy to be armed. I'm like, I don't either. It makes it so much easier for people like us, right? She's like, yeah. <laughs> and so I proceeded to say, it's like, look, I'm not here to change any of your minds. I don't believe that any of you are wrong to want to be safer. I don't believe that any of you are wrong to stand here and protest. I don't believe that you're wrong to try and keep weapons out of the hands of those who don't deserve it. That's been the quest of humanity since the beginning of time. All I want to do is lend some perspective. All I want to do, and I, th at this point, I had already told one of them that I, well, all of them, that I owned an AR-15. And the look on her poor face. <laughs> and this wasn't meant to scare her. So the reason why I summed up the conversation by saying, this is meant to lend perspective. This is meant to show you that we don't have to butt heads just because the TV tells you that I'm the bad guy. I'm not the bad guy. Knowledge is more power, is more powerful than any weapon you can ever hold. And then the girl who said that um, she wants stronger background checks proceeded to say, ignorance is not bliss. And, I'm, and I said, you are absolutely correct. We're not enemies here, regardless of what I have in my closet or what you have in yours. All I want to show you is you don't have to have cognitive dissonance and toe the party line. I don't have to do it either. We can talk with each other. We can go out and create our own truth. I showed you the perspective of your average gun owner and how I use it to guarantee my own safety. And one day, you might be able to do it too. Get your permits. Guarantee your own safety. Right? And they're like, yeah. 
Now, mind you, again, I probably didn't change their mind. They probably still do want stronger gun laws. That one probably does want to see the AR-15 continue to be illegal. But the point being is I got to show them I'm not their enemy. You don't, you don't necessarily have to resort to banning or robbing people of rights to get what you're looking for as well. You don't have to argue. You can go out and create your own truth. Not every idea has to be politicized. And that was the whole point of that. Those kids proceeded to thank me for my time, thank me for my insight and perspective. And I went along my merry way and visited the barber that the kid told me to go to. And that barber ended up telling me he will not give me a buzz cut because he doesn't settle for shit. And I'm like, I respect that. (laughs) So I walked out. (laughs) So that was my day. Very nice. It was very nice. Segue. That's pretty cool that you uh, helped change your minds. And here's the cool thing. I'm pulling out two things that I find amazing. A, you did it with diplomacy in a world where most people have conflicting ideas. I did it with a gun on me, too. (laughs) I had a concealed weapon on me. I didn't tell them that part, but I did have one on me. (laughs) Go figure. But here's the thing. You had a concealed weapon. You had a totally different viewpoint. And what I see a lot in America today, especially if someone has a different viewpoint or let's say they have a different kind of clothing or something on them or even a a MAGA hat, which I don't particularly wear, or they want to wear this side or that side. A lot of people are clashing and fighting and they see that as the way to convince people. They're not really going to create a dialogue and put up their fists and they're going to start something or they start screaming at each other. Well, yeah, it's like, and Trump is not 100, Trump is not 100% my favorite person in the world. I mean, by no means his attitude needs a correction. But when I see people wearing a MAGA hat, I'll I'll walk up to them and be like, I agree, let's make America great again. By that I mean, let's make it 1792 great again. (laughs) No government. Hey, Hey, you want to try a tea party? (laughs) Yeah, dude, let's just, everything that's taxed, let's throw it in the river. We're going to have nothing when we're done, but whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Well, maybe I, I kind of lost something, so maybe let's not do that. Let's just throw the IRS, you know, tax code in the river oh, and yeah. then try and set fire while we're doing that. And speaking of that, that's, in my opinion, why tyranny exists. It doesn't exist because people have gun owners or people don't, you know, own this or that. Or people have a little bit more than somebody else that exists because there's conflicting viewpoints. And unfortunately, people are not willing to create a dialogue between those viewpoints and it leads to conflict. And once it leads to conflict, it's very easy for an opportunist or someone to say, hey, there's a lot of conflict because A and B, the Democrats and Republicans are fighting, the socialists and the capitalists or A and B, or then, you know, this race and that race, or this religion or that religion, and put them up against each other. In my opinion, what really scares tyrannical uh, governments or what really scares tyrants is when people get along regardless of race, ethnicity, ideas, belief systems, religions. But the problem is a lot of people aren't willing to do that domestically. I would say the even bigger problem is there's a force that's doing that internationally where trade, as we said before, trade and e-commerce and talking to other people could be a strategy as we just saw in North Korea. Unfortunately, in parts of the world, it's not right because of a specific entity. Right, right. So I, I guess this di- this, this segues into the military-industrial complex. Well, right? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. So, 
So you were actually talking about your experience. You said a lot of people go with good intentions that they want to help people. Like you were saying today, you want good intentions, you want to help people. And they go to either create a dialogue or to, you know, defend their country or to, you know, maybe get an education or do something good. But then something, something's wrong. Something's happening that's wrong. There's something going on that's amiss. And we can say this is a conspiracy. Why? Not just because Eisenhower said, beware of the military-industrial complex. And he was a general in the military. Yes. But because we even had other generals like Smedley Butler saying war is a racket. He was one of the most decorated military individuals in history. And even today, it's a rough statistic to see what's happening with 22 veterans a day. And it's not quite clear even what some of the goals are overseas, because there's not a defined enemy. At least in World War II, we could say, going back to Hitler, there was a defined enemy. There was a defined goal. And the war has ended. And it, they were brutal wars, but they ended in four to five years. And they had a clear, <clears throat> defined goal, and they had a clear, defined threat. They were fought the way they needed to for the reasons that they needed to be fought. It, it made sense. Yeah. Same, I would say, with the Revolutionary War. The Civil War, I'd say, is debatable. But after World War II, something happened. As I said, Eisenhower got on TV and said, beware of the military-industrial complex. And we started to see a conspiracy, as we said. It's just simply when two or more people get together and talking about the two-party system in the Federal Reserve, what is apparent that happened is weapons contractors... Today now, I believe it's Raytheon, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and others decided instead of fighting wars to help people to defend civilization, to defend an idea, to defend the homeland, they could make profit out of it by creating an enemy, by creating some type of boogeyman. Right. We saw this, the Viet Cong and communism take over the world, and more recently, the war on terror. And terror is not a definable enemy it's a concept it's an idea it's an idea and anyone can employ terror um especially you could say someone who's conflicting ideas can employ terror and we see that every day someone how do you fight someone could tell me that by me walking up to those kids while having a gun on me i was terrorizing them someone could say that yeah it was a political it was a political conversation political motivations and yeah someone for all intents and purposes could could do it that way yeah Exactly. So you don't have a defined enemy. There's certain companies that are subsidized by the government or work hand in hand with them. And then they create a threat or a boogeyman or some type of fake situation that if we don't get rid of so-and-so, they have weapons of mass destruction or they're oppressing their people or they're a bad guy or A, B and C will happen to you if you don't you know, or the federal this. reserve is using his last resort throwing a, com- a country under yes and to me that's what's really going on the bankers and people who are part of i'm not going to say everyone who works for boeing or lockheed martin or rock grumman knows everything but people who are ceos or in top levels working hand in hand the federal reserve prints the money as we talked before Then you have our friendly two-party or one-party system (laughs) who acts as the beacon of it. And then also Congress, the House of Representatives and the Senate, 
and they either get kickbacks from what we can see or they work hand in hand with defense contractors. So they're getting basically free money. They're getting the support of elected officials to say, hey, we need to finance and fight these enemies that are undefined or they're boogeymen or they're funded by us and then we go and fight them. As case in point, you know, different things like the Mujahideen, ISIS, that just create creating perpetual war. And by doing this, a few defense contractors get rich and then millions of people suffer as we can see. And I actually want to defer to your experience because you said millions of people are going in with good intentions to help or at least they believe they're going to you know, help or do something good or get a free education. But what's really happening, Nick? Yeah, so this, this whole thing is a soft spot for me. You're right. Because I remember when I was 17 and the only thing I wanted to do was be a hero and have people look up to me. So that, that was ultimately the reason why I joined, especially as quickly as I did. At high school, walking around as a soldier, how fucking cool is that? Damn, I, I, I get up in my uniform and go with my recruiter and we go sit at lunch together. And people would walk up to the table and ask me, why should I join? I'm like, I'm not a recruiter. I'm just, I threw this on to be with my buddy. <laughs> uh, but anyway, <laughs> but you, you yourself are a volunteerist. And that's the, that's the core element of what makes the actual military great is people go there because they want to. The draft still does exist, but for now, people are doing it because they want to. And another hard part is because an element of capitalism has been used to make the military as powerful as it is. The hard part is that the F-22 Raptor, a stealth fighter that can turn on a dime by it's God, the list of features it has, wouldn't happen if Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman didn't compete for that spot of the stealth air dominance fighter. These things wouldn't exist if there wasn't a competition among freer markets, capitalist-ish style markets. So that's kind of where it's a soft spot because I know what it's supposed to be. And I've been involved in what it feels like to have a, a piece of equipment that someone had to compete in order to, you know, for, for the best price with the best features and being surrounded by people who are there because they volunteered to be there. Of course, everyone there is like, oh my God, I can't wait to get out. <laughs> but um, it's, it's tough. So the experience I have is purely me seeing what it's supposed to be. And then getting out or spending time outside of drill, realizing what it actually is, is the painful part. Because, like I said, I joined to be a model citizen, to, to, to be looked up to, to be inspiring. And it worked on a couple of people. There were a couple of people who told me that they were inspired by me, which is odd. Because some of the people who said it were complete deadbeats, but I'm glad it has an impression on them especially. But, <laughs> anyway... Um, Look, everybody wants to better their lives, so I'm not actually... See, a lot of people get very black and, and white. They're like, oh, well, it's all bad or it's all good. And some people want to better their lives, and there's some aspects. I'd say you learn teamwork. You learn how to get in better shape. You learn how to you know, work with a disciplined regiment, which isn't bad, especially if you want to accomplish something even like a podcast like this. You can also learn some on, you know, hand critical thinking skills when you face situations of how to deal with them. And, but there's an element that you're learning this for that maybe it's not so good. Yeah. And the hard, like, one of the other things is 
it teaches resilience more importantly than anything. Not necessarily teach, but through experience, you inevitably become resilient because you're being forced to do things that are <clears throat> irregular, to say the least. And I'm not even talking about going to war. I mean, like, when I got told once that I can take my, my gun and ammo to bed with me because we're getting up in three hours to go do another security detail, and then getting settled in, taking my uniform off, and then having the first sergeant come in and say, turn in your ammo, I'm like, fuck, are you kidding me? You know, stupid shit like that. But you, you buck up and you deal with it. Or, you know, you're sleeping in a tent and it was supposed to be warm out that night, but then it dropped to 30 degrees and you didn't bring your nice blanket and you're fucked. So it's like there's little things that you learn how to put up with. And it's horrible. It's unreasonable. But you adapt and you survive. Yeah, you adapt and survive. So when you get out into the civilian world, and in my case, when my boss tells me I need to make 50 phone calls a day, I say to myself... Well, it's better than quality controlling 500 to 700 guns a night getting arthritis in my hands. It's better than that. It's better than sleeping in the freezing cold. It's, I will do precisely what you're asking because I have weighed my experiences and what you're asking me to do is not all that bad at the end of the day. You can push me as long, as hard as you need to, but as long as I have the ability to say, you know what, this is worth doing because A and B already happened to me. Yeah. It's there's a certain resilience that you get and even cranking out 700 guns a night I was saying to myself it's better than sleeping in a 30 degree outside world with only your sheet <laughs> it, it, it shows you how much worse things can get of course some things do eventually become intolerable and you eventually find out that it's not worth it that's ultimately why I left the army on top of the political aspect of it and why I left Sig Sauer and went to Honda. And now from Honda, the goal is to become self-employed because now it doesn't have to be, eventually, it won't have to be 50 phone calls a day. It won't have to be that. So, but for now, 50 phone calls a day is better than 700 guns a night and it's better than sleeping in a tent in 30 degree weather. So the army teaches that element of resilience. And for, for always, I will always respect them for that. So that's what makes it so hard. And it's also so hard to know that the equipment we have is so great because of the competitive nature of our economies and the government's picking between a couple of really good options, but picking ultimately the best one, but also the lowest bidder one. <laughs> Who can do this at the cheapest price in the best way? But it's great. That's why we have the F-22. Yeah, that's why we have a free market, and that's really what it comes down to. So there's the good aspects, as you mentioned. There's a free market aspect of competition that creates great goods and services. There's resilience in teaching you how to survive and adapt to different situations and teamwork and also learning how are you going to face, you know, A, B, and C, like a, a night where you have to be sleeping out in, the, in a tent in the cold or a day when you have to do something you're not prepared for or work on very little sleep. When you find out you can do it, it makes you stronger. But you mentioned, and that's all positive, so it's not all you know, black and white, there's gray area. But then I am alluding to there's something else going on as part of your experience, and I'd like to see the other side of it. As I said, you know, it's almost like two-faced. There's a good side. I'm feeling good. I'm inspired. I'm being a hero. I'm getting in shape. I'm dealing with different situations. I'm getting better. I'm getting stronger. I'm getting quicker on my feet. 
And I also have maybe some people who look up to me, respect me in that way. And then there's a competitive nature of getting some very good gear and working with some tools that you really like to. But what's it all being used for? So the negatives, here we go. You can, the more time you spend in the military, especially me, I was in the Massachusetts National Guard and Massachusetts is not a friend of freedom (laughs) at all. Sure, okay, they pioneered gay, gay marriage and they legalized weed, but that's literally all they did in the name of freedom. They still robbed like the, the fucking... the People's fuck Republic? <laughs> yeah, People's Republic, my ass, oh my god. So, <laughs> so, <clears throat> well, being in the military police in particular, you start to notice how political it's actually getting, the political role that the military serves. And when you are being told that you are to take to the streets of Boston armed with body armor... Gun, handcuffs, pepper spray, taser. Well, not taser. We didn't get those for some reason. But anyway, whatever. Suddenly, the military is now making a presence in regular civilian life. You know, regular civilian lives. Military soldier, uh, soldiers are starting to show up. And we're being told to regard civilians in the same way that we would regard really any subject or situation as a regular cop. Or things like that. So you can start to see the military becoming a political arm of of the government over here. As if Kent State didn't do enough for that. (laughs) And I can't help but wonder, what's the goal here? I mean, that's a rhetorical question. I'm fully aware that the military police state is the ultimate goal. That's the hard part. So the military industrial complex is going strong bombing brown people overseas or whoever rejected the dollar for whatever reason or whatever and then over here the military starts to make a more frequent armed presence in the country and the national guard starts showing up to riots a little more often even though i mean they always have but it's a little different because i feel like the political climate was made on purpose to create a reason for the national guard to show up armed to the tooth for riots To show the people that no longer, no matter how hard you kick and scream, and no matter how many buildings you burn, you will lose. Yeah, and here's an interesting fact. You see these kids, they have good intentions, and they're saying, hey, we want to ban guns. Let's say they got enough kids, they got enough pressing kids to do that, and they use enough emotional manipulation through, hey, look, fake news. (laughs) So it all ties together. And then what they do is they say, hey, how are we going to collect these? Well, they can use the police. Well, let's say the police failed to do that. Who would they use then? <laughs> well, my theory was always the UN. Or they could use, well, but who really, who really has a lot of the power of the UN? It would be the American military. So they could use, theoretically they really want to if they get out they could use something like the national guard see that's why it's a little bit dangerous because it turns into something where domestic citizens maybe they're protesting something maybe they don't like something maybe they are causing disturbance and rioting in neighborhoods i'm not going to deny you know that obviously there are groups out there who are causing a lot of problems the issue is though domestically and we can start with their If you have a force like the National Guard, if you have a standing army, then it's dangerous because you're doing something the government doesn't like, 
you could potentially be a situation of something like Waco, a situation um, like the Bundy Ranch, or just a situation where National Guard or, or you know troops are showing up because you're not maybe turning in your guns or you have something that they a resource that they want or you're not playing by their rules. So it turns into a force where you're saying, I'm going to do something for good, or now I have to go against my fellow neighbor citizen. Right. And so, that's the dangerous part. Yeah, and I'm never, ever going to agree with destroying private property and things that you didn't earn in the name of a political statement. I will never agree with that. However, I do still understand that the point of this political climate and the point of these riots is for the government to step in and show you will never win against us, no matter how hard you kick and scream or what you come at us with. We will win. And we will even get the people to pity us for what you did to us. Even though, I mean, uh, oh my god, I can't believe I just said that. That's, uh, uh, gets me angry. Gotta use that fake news, man. Uh, uh, because the fake news just turns it around. As you can see, what happens in all these situations is, I, and I've seen the articles, are like, oh, the Bundy Ranch is a bunch of crazy people. They're doing this. Or these cattle farmers. Are, and then they make them as the bad guy. But if you really look into it, there are people defending their property more than once. So they can switch it around. The problem is if we can get people away from fake news, like I said, they do their own research and listen to the show prior and they go, okay, maybe I saw a fake news story where someone was trying to defend his property and maybe he had firearms, maybe he had a plant, <laughs> maybe, he had, maybe he had Kratom. They still haven't banned it yet, have they? Not yet. Not yet. Maybe he maybe he just made the wrong statement or criticized the wrong person. Which, funny enough, as the clash said, you have freedom of speech as long as you're not dumb enough to actually try it. So they make a bad statement, they have an item or they're causing a disturbance or they're just cutting into profits. Yeah, and free then they're true the freedom of speech will never truly exist because someone's always going to come along and try and stifle it. Yes, unfortunately, that is the truth. But we but we work with shows like this to keep it alive and keep it moving. And if they see the headlines and they can stop and think, and they can listen to something like this and say, "Is this person really the bad guy, or was I convinced that he was the bad guy because of what I saw?" on the news as a bad guy, somebody else is it could it be this entity domestically called the military industrial complex. And it's the same thing internationally, which I want to switch to. Now you can see that there's a lot of pride, you know, we're doing this, we're, de we're defending. And I even see people on Facebook are very convinced we're defending freedom. We're defending democracy. That makes we're, zero we're sense. Fighting for rights. <clears throat> We're fighting for your rights. We're, uh, we're securing A, B, and C. We're fighting the bad guys. And it sounds good kind of on paper. We, we support liberty. And our enemies don't. And then you come to the question, well, okay, what freedoms did I not have or what freedoms were so-and-so trying to take away? You, yeah. could, you could ask the question. What freedoms was Iraq going to take away? What freedoms was, you know, so-and-so, even these so-called boogeymen going to take away? And what could you do, you know, 
yesterday or a year or two from now that you can do today. And if you really ask that question and you see things like the Patriot Act, more and more laws, it comes apparent that your employer is the one taking away more and more things I can do, not the opposite. No, oh, yeah. The, the Taliban is not storming our beaches anytime soon. And even if they did, it's, it's not going to be taking anyone's freedom over here. The only way to truly take someone's freedom is to either kill them or imprison them. And that that's also kind of a, a blanket statement because I guess you could argue that the U.S. is kind of like a prison simply because of the amount of things that you can't do or you have to ask permission for or get taxed in order to do. Um, <clears throat> I mean, who's really taking the freedom? Because at the end of the day, if your biggest concern is, you know, Muslims coming over and, you know, um, you know, maybe possibly bombing people as refugees or doing foot washings in public, who's ultimately the one who's going to make sure that the refugees, when they do come, they don't bomb you? Well, how about the very people who are going to write laws expanding the Patriot Act to watch you, too, to make sure you're not also bombing anyone or going to or making sure that religious practices as a whole become invisible in public and that you can't do them at all. By taking away one religion's freedom, you move on to the next one because more and more people get offended by someone else's freedom. Yeah, it's, it's at the end of the day, it's, they're not going to take it. It's the ideas that they have that people might be afraid of that the government's not afraid to act on that will take away your freedom. I don't mind being watched. They're only looking for terrorists. I'm not a terrorist. Well, you might have a pretty interesting-looking plant growing in your in your room. That's cause for concern. Don't worry. You'll you'll meet the government in a couple days, and your dog will be gone. <laughs> nice try, guy. And uh, what was what's really scary is that it escalates and it escalates to the point where military-industrial complex. Um, has to keep making up fake, you know, working with this fake news engine, working with this Federal Reserve engine, and A, it's printing more money, it's hurting people domestically, and it's hurting people internationally through military force. And what's worse is we have the third dimension of the fake news creating fake stories, and then you have, as we turn back to something like the chemical attack in Syria, which never proved of who did it, and then all of a sudden Raytheon and Lockheed Martin, even though, yes, they, they create some amazing technological feat, no doubt about that, we're using it to bomb civilians or bomb countries that we shouldn't even be in part of. Why? Because it doesn't agree with our interests. And how is it happening? Through this entity called the military-industrial complex. Because war has now become for profit. And because keeping people who are trying to dissent from you or say something wrong about you, it's keeping away from uh, profit. And it's interesting to see that, you know, while everybody was focused on this Trump-Kim summit, um, there was a hospital bombed in Yemen. Um, the U.S. was trying to start another chemical attack in Syria. And the CFR told the U.S. government to use Propaganda, which is the Council for Foreign Relations, was told to use the U.S. government propaganda on Americans. So. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's 
it's all a big it's all a big engine, and that's kind of what I wanted to you know start with conspiracy theory because this is not an alien conspiracy theory where they're like, did you find them? Is there Bigfoot here? You know, is there sightings? This is something that's practical. It's out there and affects everyday lives, whether you're living domestically or internationally. Bigfoot's existence there, doesn't affect you. Yes. There's a force out there, unfortunately, that is using the military to make profit. And that's not to say people who join the military are bad, as we said. You learn a lot of skills. There's camaraderie. But ultimately, you have to also say, what am I doing this for? Well, am I being, is this being used for the right reasons? Who am I helping? And what is, am I doing? That is the hard question because eventually you realize you're not helping anyone except for yourself, which nobody really likes to be that selfish. Rational selfishness is a little different, but nobody really wants to be a part of that kind of engine. And people leave and they go and they commit suicide 22 times a day. They find, I think they really do find out. I mean, people will talk about, oh, it's the horrors of war. We need to take care of our veterans, which yes, we do. But by the same token, there was a study done on rats or mice. When they experienced a traumatic event together, they all recovered relatively quickly when they were taken away from the trauma but kept together. They recovered pretty quickly. When, the, when they put them through trauma again and then separated them, it took them a lot longer to recover. Not to mention, when you go through trauma and even... The question begs for a second that it wasn't justified. Now you got a problem. Did I lose my leg or watch my buddy die because of... What was it again? I don't know. Why am I here? Why do I have no leg? <laughs> Why did I do that? I, I honestly... Because like, let's, let's face it. The majority of... Of what you'll hear about veteran suicide is mainstream, or I won't say mainstream media, but someone speaking on behalf of veterans. A civilian speaking on behalf of us. Which makes zero sense, because for one reason or another, that seems to happen all the time. Why is everyone speaking for the military? Anyway, um, <laughs> so, ah, <laughs> uh, so, it's... People will stand up and say all these things that need to be done for military and things that the military needs to do when I don't think enough people are asking actual veterans, why are your nightmares haunted? And I don't think that veterans really know how to answer the question completely either. Because like, yes, events are traumatizing when things blow up. It's traumatizing when someone tries to kill you. Yes. But when people go through trauma... And they don't have to question whether or not it was justified and actually either needed to happen in their lives or what have you. I, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. It's just... if you People don't kill themselves because they saw something fucked up. Okay, it's that makes no sense. No, because I've been through some traumatic events. I'm not going to go into the depth of them. But I've been through some. I've been through some friends that have some, you know, very, very rough stories of seeing people dying. You know, EMTs. I know who worked with who who saw almost just the most horrific things every night. Stuff I can't even, you know, really get into or I don't want to visualize. I don't even know where to start. So it's not just trauma because there were, there's been wars in the past, as we said before. 
World War Two and all. But the wars ended, and there wasn't this high suicide rate. So if you have a very <laughs> high suicide rate, and that was actually the first thing that got me. Actually, what got me to really look at the military-industrial complex, what got me to look into a lot of these conspiracies, funny enough, was people who were harmed by them, or people would come out of them. And I have people come out of banking and tell their story about the Federal Reserve. I have people come out of the fake news media or people who are involved with CNN and then Fox and then tell me their story. The most interesting stories I've heard were people who came out of the military who were trying to actually even get me in there actively or people I saw, you know, who came out of them. Some people being at Go Cash, Dr. Ron Paul. And it's funny enough, people who made me the most anti-war, the people who opened my eyes to the most at this are actually veterans. Yeah. <sighs> it's tough because, like I said, this is this is a soft spot, and I I don't know how to how to answer the, the changes. Because, like, by on one hand, it's great that you have competition to create the best equipment to keep your boys alive and make sure the enemy ceases to exist, the defined enemy at least, like Hitler. And um, because if you centralized that and made it entirely up to the government, well, we wouldn't win wars anymore. <laughs> government doesn't exactly win at anything except oppression. Um, hey, they win at debt. I don't want to hear that. They'll rack up $17 trillion. That's true. That's hard. That's hard to do. How to live your life. I have a hard time racking up any more debt than what it takes to buy a house. It's I don't know how to do it. <laughs> I don't even I can't even picture seventeen trillion. Like if someone gave me half of that, I wouldn't know what to do. You could buy <laughs> everything in the world. So that's they're good at debt and they're good at not, you know, making things operational. They're good the more they spend a lot of money and they don't get anything done. <laughs> how ironic. But <laughs> and it's interesting if we look at solution I don't think we have to go super far we can look back to what the founding fathers were envisioning and it's not to say we get rid of defense altogether but we look at the offensive and defensive weapons that we're creating we liquidate maybe the offensive weapons we use it as defense only and we can have defense spending on a local level and have well and that's what they call it already that's the hard part <laughs> yeah. that's what they call it was that actually what they do i, I can, well, you know, I, can get a, I can get a soccer ball and then start dribbling it and go hey this is a basketball <laughs> so my solution would actually be do what the founding fathers said get out of all internal affairs trade with countries don't have any entangling alliances. We're going to prefer this guy. We're going to send this country money. We're going to tell this country to do this. We're going to have A, B, and C. We're going to send the troops in this country, but we'll be friends with this country. But we'll do a military operation you know, for this country, or we have to curb um, this aggression, or curb Russian aggression, or curb Chinese aggression, or get involved in North Korea. None of that. Stay out of other countries' internal affairs is what I would say. Only focus on defense, just pure defense, and engage in trade with other countries. I think everybody will become more profitable. 
maybe the defense contractors won't like it. That's too bad. They're not exactly the best people in the world. I think quite the contrary. And really, I don't think we need standing armies. That was one thing the um, Founding Fathers warned against, is having a standing army, because that can cause problems domestically, as we can see. One question, though. So doesn't, not... doesn't the Constitution make way for a standing army, though? From what I understand, the Founding Fathers talked about it. There were Federalists and Anti-Federalists. I think some would agree with the standing army. I personally don't. I think some were for it, some were against it. Yeah, I, I could really go either way on it. I mean, every now and then, what I do is I have debates with pro-military people all the time. And I'm not necessarily anti-military, I shouldn't say that. But I offer the perspective that, you know, the Somali pirates in 2013 took uh, how many over a thousand hostages? And then uh, Blackwater went over there and um, at... 8% of the cost of the entire fleet of the U.S. Navy that would have gone over. Instead, they went over at, again, 8% of the cost. And in 2014, there was not a single hostage taken. <laughs> huh, weird. <laughs> like, when I say not necessarily pro-standing army, I'm not necessarily saying that people don't, like, there aren't some people out there who need killing. Some do. Obviously, Hitler, for example. Or really anybody that robs anybody of their right to life so yes yeah so i'm not necessarily i'm not like anti-violence i understand we're animals and it's always going to exist and sometimes the only way to answer is well with it it sucks but that's the way it is um yeah no here's one thing i want to preface i'm not gonna start any episode by saying oh i'm gonna fix all violence and make everybody rich there'll be no poverty no disease no war because that that A is going to be unrealistic, and two, you'll start to think, I'm creating a conspiracy now, like they got together to get more views and uh, to tell people, you know, I don't want to tell anybody any anything unrealistic. Clickbait, we solved what your I would piece. Say, what I would say is this. Let's start domestically. You haven't seen a security guard really beat anybody up. I think we can do with private security, and there actually is – if you want to look this up, if someone was, there's a company called Threat Management. You remember what happened in Detroit. Government didn't do so well. Not surprising. Spent too much, ran out of resources, wasn't able to maintain citizens. What happened is Dale Brown, CEO of Threat Management, decided, hey, maybe we can do security in our own way. And he formed a company. And it does have some uh, ex-military people. And then and some ex-cops. And they do work with the cops, so it's not an anti-cop thing, necessarily. But they focus on making sure people get to work at like a cheap rate, making sure that people are safe, they greet people, they have a camera on them, they ask them questions. So it's not to say, let's get rid of security, let's just assume everybody's going to be all angels and we'll be fine. Because that's not really a good solution, and that's fairly naive thinking on the part of human nature. Right, exactly. What I'm, we, I was just going to point out. Have, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, we can have private solutions for security domestically, and we can have private solutions like a well-regulated militia for international affairs, and trading with countries as the Cato Institute, which is libertarian. Yeah. That, hey, it doesn't mean war is impossible, but it's almost next to impossible. Because if I want your goods, 
even if I don't like you, even if I don't like you, if we're trading, like even if you don't like that barber, if he doesn't get a job with your haircut, he still may come back, even though it'd be like, man, eh, you know, the service wasn't great. I won't Three talk to him. But... <laughs> yeah, you won't talk to him. And actually, I have people like that who I'm friends with. Literally, I work with IT. I would not hang out with them. I would be the last person to hang out with them. <laughs> I'll be the first person to go, I have a technical problem. I need your help because you have good knowledge. Would never associate with them. Not because they're bad people, just because, you know, they don't have really any social skills. They're on their computers all day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a funny thing to picture. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's, when you work in IT, it's not even hard. So, but we're never, I'm never going to have conflict with them. Why? Because they have knowledge and trades and skills that I need. And they, in turn, um, need something from me as well. And that's the entire Maybe concept of the free market. Communication stuff. Like people, yeah, now when you take that internationally. People argue, right. bake the cake, bake the cake. And I'm just like, right, <laughs> one, you have the right to refuse service. I don't care who you're talking about. Two, in your right mind, why would you say no to someone's money? Why? You're shrinking your target market. I'm trying to increase mine, dumbass. Like, <laughs> yeah, and, and a thing I really didn't like is, well, why can't we trade with Iran? Why can't we trade with Cuba? We can trade with, you know, North, we can trade with uh, the European Union or a different European state. We can take the good and leave the bad. We can trade, as far as I'm concerned, with all countries we're on with. And I bet you if you trade. We could trade to our standard of living. Trading. Whatever it is that we want yeah. or like, we can trade to our standard and pick and choose those who have it. And it's like, that's awesome. Um, Let's trade. There you go. Yeah, we can use the power of trade internationally. And the power of having a strong, well-regulated militia. And like, and that's the way I look at the Founding Fathers' view. Hey, Somebody could debate me on that. It was trade that taught people you don't have to kill the producer to acquire resources. Yeah. Way Frederick, back in the day. Frederick Bastiat even said, if goods don't cross borders, soldiers will. And he makes a good point. And that's why I'm not a... You know, you can talk about actually on one hand, this was a good summit, but then putting tariffs on people, trying to deregulate trade, doing a trade war. These are all terrible things. So we need to stop doing that. And yeah, maybe some people go I, out of business or some people have struggles, but that's how you get the free market. You say, oh, my competitor is doing well. How do I beat him? How do I become better at what I do? I do mildly understand the concept of a tariff, though. I in the way that Trump is doing it, it kind of makes sense because if I have this right, I could be wrong. The idea is to create an insurmountable tariff that a country doesn't want to pay in order to negotiate completely removing all tariffs to open up trade. If, I, if I'm wrong, that's what I would use it for. It's like, hey, why are you, why are you taxing my country to death? Goods should cross borders. So I'm going to put a tariff on you until you lower yours. So, I mean, it's... It's it's immature. I don't think that's the way you should do it. But by the same token, if I'm correct, that's not the worst idea I've ever heard of. At least you're not taxing your own citizens. <laughs> that's all I can ask for at this point. Okay. Is it the worst idea? I don't know. Is it the best idea? No. Mm, here, Okay. That's kind of like me saying, hey, Nick, you're beating up people. So all I'm going to do is fight you and then uh, beat you up. And then say, In my opinion... What right. you can do. Two wrongs don't make it right. <laughs> I mean, remove, yeah. I don't want to fight more terrorists with terrorists and then fight more terrorists with terrorists. I feel that is that could 
a maybe he'll he'll get rid of it. I could see that also escalating into bigger trade wars. I'm all for free trade. I use eBay all the time. Big fan of Bitcoin. I think free trade works. And my solution is get the government out of trade. Instead of have government putting tariffs, government should not be in trade. Even if you're saying, okay, Kareem, I believe in in some government, on uh, you know, constitutionalist, minarchist, okay. If government's not good at doing anything else, as we said, $17 trillion in debt, why would you trust them with trade? If a broker came up to you and said, I'm a billion dollars in debt, can I help you with your trade expenditures? You'd be like, yeah, no. yeah, it doesn't sound Sorry. like you know what you're doing. You know, it's it's like the guy with, it's like the guy with you know 300 one star reviews. Like, hey, I'll help you out. I'll do it at a cheap price. I'm like, yeah, I can see why. So, if they can't manage their own finances, I think it's very very hard to say that they can delegate trade. And what they should do is get out of trade, and we can establish private opportunities to help regulate trade. One thing, well, I'll give you an example. I use eBay. I do a lot of international stuff. I've had one time where someone did rip me off. I'm not saying the free market's perfect. And I do want to highlight that. And they ripped me off. They, they weren't sending something. They weren't sending something. So I called eBay buyer protection and PayPal and said, hey, person, I paid for this. I didn't get the item. It wasn't shipped. This is the uh, this is the amount I sent, and I haven't seen anything come through. I said, give it a couple of days. If he doesn't pay through, you know, we'll refund you. I actually had two situations. One, they refunded me, and the other one, um, I kept nagging the buyer, and he did send it. Now, I think, just based on that and other stories I've seen in the free market, yes. There's loss. There can be some problems, but you can use the free market to enhance the issues of trade without imposing things like tariffs or trade regulations. And that starts by getting centralized government out of the picture of trade completely. Well, yeah. And if the country that you're trying to tariff stops trading with you, it might be a wake up call. Like, again, I don't think it's a requirement to put a trade or, excuse me, tariff on somebody. Just to try and you know call their bluff. I get that. I'm not. It's not completely wrong to me. But by the same token, don't you think that just not trading with them will kind of teach them a lesson? That's valuable revenue that they're now doing without because they've priced you out of the market. Duh, right? Yeah, it's a possible alternative. The problem. The only problem I have is. It's not necessarily me. It's not an individual private basis. It's not me saying I'm going to take my business elsewhere. It's almost like, let's say, um, package media is um, going to say, okay, well, I'm going to stop A, B show. I'm going to stop uh, giving you – or actually, that's a bad example. It's really like the government saying that, hey, we're going to punish you, the manufacturers of this certain good – and then the consumers of this certain good. But the problem is we're doing something on a private basis. I'm going to buy Honda or Benz or, you know, whatever international good I'm buying. And then I'm then I ultimately will get punished for it or the manufacturer will get punished for it. That's that's my only contingency is that it's teaching a lesson, but it's hurting people inadvertently who then need to, you know, 
we're consuming that good. So that that's why I still have a little bit of an issue with it. Right, because yeah. Because you're you're still hurting you're still hurting private citizens who would like to purchase something. At the end of the day, when it comes to taxation and punishments, at the end of the day the middle class or whoever's buying the product is the one who suffers. And that's that's my that's my biggest problem because even if I say with all good intentions, oh, I'm going to punish Japan. Their, their, their Hondas are too good. They, they last a lot. And, and by yeah. token of what I can see empirically, <laughs> my mom's Honda is, I think, 18, 20 years. still going. Has Still ha- has a few problems. A, a lot of my friends who have bought um, stuff from like Chevy or Ford, unfortunately, hasn't, hasn't worked out as well. Not to say what car you should buy. That's what I, I've just seen on a personal basis. Now, if I went to buy a Honda and someone said, oh, you know, it's gone from 15 to 20 to, to 30 grand because of tariffs, and I just say, hey, I want a stable car that, you know, I can get around for years and years and, you know, support my family, and I'm not necessarily looking for an expensive car, and this is who I'd like to buy from, then it's hurting me because somebody in the federal government said, hey, I can teach manufacturers from Japan a lesson. And... Maybe, maybe they do teach them a lesson, but it, it hurts me or it hurts somebody who wanted to consume that product. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I don't disagree. I'm just all I'm saying is out of all the things that could have been done, ah, I guess I don't yeah. have to call this one tyranny. <laughs> it's not tyranny, in my opinion. This isn't tyranny. It's just not, from what I can see, the best decision in the world. But. Going back to how do we solve the military-industrial complex, I think it can be solved with private security and trade. Exactly, yeah. Because, again, I'm, the Black Panthers did it. They policed their own people back in the 1960s, and the government came in and said, No! <laughs> we have to police you. We have to continue to beat you. Even though they weren't beating on each other. Everything was perfectly fine. They had it all figured out. It was being privately done by a couple of volunteers and government stepped in and said, no, we have to continue the beatings. <laughs> I mean, basically, in other words, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there's and that. The interesting thing is, um, I feel safer with private security and someone started this thing called Cell 911, or Cell 911, sorry, had an extra one, where it could say like, hey, do you have a fire? Do you have an emergency? Do you have something? It's an app on your phone. So let's say you get disillusioned with, you know, okay, the cops do take a very long time to show up because I've called them once. And I'm like, geez, this is, you know, this is not a great service. They take like 20, 30 minutes to show up. Thanks for coming. Then, <laughs> yeah, I was like, geez, what if you had an app that you said, hey, neighbor, my house is on fire. Hey, neighbor, my house is being robbed. And then they happen to have a gun or a concealed carry and it'd be or interesting a fire extinguisher. To see, yeah or fire or something yeah and it'd be interesting to see hey you know some of these kids what would happen if you know just ask them what would happen if someone broke into your house you know at night or someone's trying to uh, or someone's causing some problem where um they're trying to steal something from you uh, who get, uh, the cops going to show up in time? You could you imagine will? like an app that? Oh my god! Could you imagine if um? And it should well maybe not necessarily an app, but a phone manufacturer started doing something something like this. If there was like an SOS button on your phone, then it just alerted everyone within a general uh, geographic area or radius to you that you're in trouble. 
Do you imagine? How cool would that be? You don't have to do anything about it, but it's like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. What's happening? I mean, me personally, I'd be like, oh, shit, let's go do this. I'm going to go put out your fire or kill your robber or rapist, what have you. I'll do it. Yeah. Cops will be here in five minutes. I'll be there in 30 seconds. <laughs> That'd be dope. Yeah, and that, and that's, a, that's the awesomeness of the free market. You can have security in different ways. You can have private security. You can have ways to um, use cell 911, and then you can say, hey, National Guard, you know, um, even major police, I don't think uh, you need your service anymore, or at least regulate it to a point where we can have a lot more localized people working um, to benefit each other. That way we, we beat this conspiracy not by trying to fight the old system, but creating a new existing system that's better. And on an international way, could you imagine if we had uh, free trade, the amount of wealth we generate, the amount of wealth other countries would generate if they stopped <laughs> fighting? And that's not to say there wouldn't be bad people. There wouldn't be people trying to start conflict. There wouldn't be bad leaders. But it could minimize a lot of the suffering caused by the military-industrial complex domestically and internationally, and maybe even bring a halt to institution over time because people will see that hey if i can regulate what i'm doing and if i can work locally to provide security and trade internationally to provide security and maybe even do security um internationally is it possible that the free market could eventually put a halt to this big machine and that's where I'll, I'll leave it today. Yes, I agree. I agree. Pretty much anything done privately, with the exception of prisons, <laughs> is an, is an yes. more effective means. I think the free market eventually is going to help because it's not con based on a conspiracy. It's people getting together, not to do something bad, but to try and find a simple way to make something more efficient. I think once the free market really takes hold, we can get this idea out to people that, hey, maybe you've been looking at this the wrong way. Maybe the government isn't the good guy you thought and is not helping your neighbor. Maybe you can help your neighbor with an app. And then, hey, what if we can't do it? Well, can we get private security that would help us without the you know problems of the National Guard? All you have to do is forces. point out how much the taxi unions in new york are trying to get uber illegal <laughs> just like yes why do you think that is huh <laughs> looks like the free market found a better idea <laughs> yeah and you can't really beat the free market so what if you did that and then what if could you imagine the great relationships we could have with other countries if we just did trade i think overall would it eliminate violence and, and poverty and all the problems in the world? No. But would it be a safer, more prosperous world where you wouldn't mind actually turning on your TV, where you wouldn't mind interacting with your neighbor, where you'd be excited to travel to places and where you'd uh, want to engage more and more in free trade? And what would it do also in terms of like the blockchain and other devices being created and how much wealth, how much wealth, could be created if, you know, that $17 trillion went to something better other than just printing money in defense. Spending. You have to create wealth. You can't print it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conspiracy Theorem from Packaged Media. 
The show is hosted by Kareem Mays and Nick Dole and produced and edited by Eric Lambiasi. Send us your opinion either in an email or through voicemail on our site. Remember to give us a 5-star rating and review on iTunes. Return next week for the next episode, and remember, make your own decisions.